Everyone okay online? Everyone doing okay? Drop something in the chat. Make sure someone knows that you're here, that uh, you're glad you made it to church. But how many of you enjoying the sunshine? I was not expecting that kind of response. I was expecting, like, yeah, okay. But anyway, I thought y'all love snow. That's why you live here, no? All right, I'm still figuring this all out. But so glad I'm able to come hang out with you today. Uh, my name is Tom. If you haven't been a part of the church for a while, I'm able to serve here as the executive pastor. And any chance I have to come and share something with you uh, on a Sunday morning is always a, a true privilege and something I always love doing and don't take lightly. I'm so glad that you're able to come hang out with us, spend this part of your weekend with us. Hopefully something from today is helpful, encouraging, maybe challenging, um, but truly so, so glad that you're here. One thing that I always suggest is that during a message, during a sermon, uh, during a talk is that it's always helpful to take notes. Um, it doesn't have to be a long, lengthy essay, but if you want to grab a phone and just write down a few bullet points or one thing or something or a scripture reference, something that's going to be helpful, and maybe this week you'll have a chance to reflect back on that um, and something good can come of it. And I was planning on saying that to you, and as I was uh, sort of thinking about that, I was reminded of something. Um, My youngest son, his name is Moses. He's seven. He is incredible. Uh, And he was inspired lately to start journaling. Um, I would love to stand here and tell you it's because he has seen Megan and I diligently journal, but the truth is he saw the Diary of a Wimpy Kid movies, and he was inspired to journal, and we made an agreement. I was like, we'll get you this journal, and it's private. This is for you to put down what you want to put down. Mom and Dad aren't going to go snooping through it. Um, this is for you. It's private. And Megan and I stuck to it. And one day he's sort of like, Dad, have you been reading my journal? I said, no. Have you been writing anything mean about me in there? He said, no, but if I find out you've been reading it, I will. (laughs) All that to say, taking notes in church is always a good idea because I truly believe there's going to be something that will be helpful for you. If not today, maybe later on this week. If not later on this week, this time next year. But here we are, and today is uh, week five um, of a five-part series that we started on Isaiah 53. Um, And so I can't believe we're at week five, and this is uh, my plan and my intention is that this is the last week of this series, and it's amazing the things we haven't been able to cover in the five weeks we've been doing this. Um, You know, we haven't got to the Ethiopian eunuch. I had a conversation with my dad yesterday, and he decided to tell me all the stuff he would say if he was up here preaching. But you're not dad, so keep your thoughts to yourself. I'm joking. Dad's going to be watching online right now. Dad, I love you, respect you, and honor you the way that the Ten Commandments tell me to. Um, But don't exacerbate your sons the way that Paul says in Ephesians 6. Anyway, well, we're off to a weird start today. (laughs) But... So yes, there's a number of things we haven't covered, so don't be altogether surprised if we get to a couple of bonus weeks uh, as the months go by. But as for today, we're going to be digging back in uh, to uh, the portion of Scripture, Isaiah 53. It's the most often quoted portion of the Old Testament in the New Testament. Uh, Some people have uh, counted and tallied, and by their estimation, this portion of Scripture that we're going to get to in just a few moments is either alluded to or directly quoted uh, as many as 34 times in the New Testament. So the New Testament writers agree that this is a portion of Scripture worth paying attention to, that this portion of Scripture that we're going to dig into, that we've been looking at the past number of weeks, points to Jesus in an incredibly helpful way for New Testament believers who believe in the power of the cross, who believe that Jesus rose again on the third day, on that first Easter Sunday, that this passage of Scripture can help us understand all that took place that day. And with that in mind, um, we're going to dig into, and before we get there, I want to hit on a verse on Colossians. And so Colossians 
Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. This is Paul writing 700 years after Isaiah wrote this. But he's telling us this is what he has to tell the church about Jesus. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is the first in everything. And a very surface uh, reading of this passage of Scripture shows us just truly how amazing Jesus is. You don't have to do a bunch of digging around. You don't have to do word searches. You don't have to look at what it says in the Greek. A very, very surface reading of this passage of Scripture is an incredible reminder of just how amazing Jesus is. And there is no comparison that Jesus Christ is the single greatest human being that has ever lived and will ever live. It's worth clapping for, I think, because he truly is amazing. Amen. But if we have a distorted view of what it is about Jesus that makes him so great, it will affect what we think greatness means for us. And so here we are in week five, and we're going to look at, and we're going to consider the verse that's used in the passage in Isaiah that we're going to get to in a moment talks about exalted. There is this idea of greatness. And there's something built into people, it's in you, it's in me, that wants us to strive for greatness, which is not a bad thing. Words like success, ambition, greatness, these aren't forbidden words, but I do believe, and what I want to propose to you today, is that they do need to be redefined. Greatness, success, ambition, these aren't terrible, awful, evil things that we need to run away from. But I do believe, and I do hope that as we walk through this verse, uh, this passage from Isaiah, that we will see that the idea of greatness that can be imposed upon us, the idea of greatness that surrounds the world uh, that we live in every single day, I believe needs to be redefined and rethought and reevaluated in the light of who Jesus is. And I, uh, I, I have told you many times, I, I love YouTube. It is the single greatest app on my phone. I think it is absolutely incredible. Um, I could start every conversation with, hey, I was watching this video on YouTube recently. But I was watching this video on YouTube recently, and I was watching uh, top soccer skills from the world's best soccer players. Now, I, I've tried to get into American sports. It has not gone well. Uh, I am faithful to soccer, or as we call it, football, because you use your foot. <laughs> I got a microphone. You haven't. But I was watching world's top soccer skills from players. And so it would have moments in games where players would do incredible tricks and incredible skills. You know, things like, you know, a flick here and a back heel there and, you know, something with extreme precision and something that was, you know, really good. Something that if I tried to do, I would either break a window or break a bone. You know what I'm saying? And I was watching all these tips, you know, these tricks that players were doing, and I'm impressed. I'm a soccer fan. I'm watching this, and I've played, and so I'm like, yeah, there's no way I could do that. That's incredible. These are the world's best players. But what I noticed after watching this video on YouTube is that the players would do all these tricks and these, you know, these different, uh, you know, sort of skills and all these nifty bits in the game. But very often, they would do a piece of skill, pass the ball, and the person they passed to goofed it up. Or they would do this incredible piece of skill, and then they would take the shot, but the shot would go over. And I noticed that oftentimes they would do these real fancy things, these things that are worthy of getting my attention as a soccer fan and thinking to myself, wow, that's incredible, but it didn't result in a goal. 
You don't win soccer games by doing tricks. You win the soccer game by scoring goals. Now that's a real oversimplified way of looking at we can be impressed with the wrong things. But what wins the game is getting the ball over the line and scoring. And as we think about greatness, and as we think about what it is that Jesus did and the role model that he is for true greatness, I do think we need to redefine. I do think we need to reevaluate what is greatness. What does it mean for you? What does it mean for me for greatness? Because if we're fascinated with the idea of greatness being the tricks and all the skills and the fancy stuff, we miss that no, it is the goal that we're pressing towards. And that is true greatness. So with that said, we're going to dig in to Isaiah 53. It's not a short passage of scripture, but as I've done all the other weeks, we're going to read it from beginning to end. And the words are going to be on the screen if you want to follow along or if you have your Bible. Isaiah 53 starts in the last verse of Isaiah 52. So Isaiah 52, starting verse 13, see my servant will prosper. He will be highly exalted. But many were amazed when they saw him. His face was so disfigured, he seemed hardly human. And from his appearance, one would scarcely know he was a man. And he will startle many nations. Kings will stand speechless in his presence. For they will see what they had not been told. They will understand what they had not heard about. Who has believed our message? To whom has the Lord revealed his powerful arm? My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. He was despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with deepest grief. We turned our backs on him and looked the other way. He was despised and we did not care. Yet it was our weaknesses he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God, a punishment for his own sins. But he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. All of us like sheep have strayed away. We have left God's paths to follow our own. Yet the Lord laid on him the sins of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly, yet he never said a word. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep is silent before the shearers, he did not open his mouth. Unjustly condemned, he was led away. No one cared that he died without descendants, that his life was cut short in midstream. But he was struck down for the rebellion of my people. He had done no wrong and had never deceived anyone. But he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. He will enjoy a long life and the Lord's good plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous. For he will bear all their sins. I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier. Because he exposed himself to death, he was counted among the rebels. He bore the sins of many and interceded for rebels. So here we have that verse. And we see that the suffering servant, as Isaiah calls, who we now know as Jesus, as we looked at over the past few weeks, this is clearly, undeniably pointing to what Jesus would do on the cross. This is true greatness. And in the world, what's understood as greatness or exalted, as Isaiah says, is different than what we see modeled here. In this passage, we read about great things that were achieved, but it was done differently than we would ever imagine. 
Now, the first thing I'd ask you to write down if you are taking notes today is that the cross redefines greatness. The cross redefines greatness. And so for today, we're going to look at three things, three great things that we see that were achieved in Isaiah 53. And then we're going to look at three ways how Jesus achieved the greatness that Isaiah promises. So we're going to look at three great things that were achieved, and then we're going to look at three ways how, and I believe that it's going to speak to you and it's going to speak to me about our understanding of greatness, this burden that it's inside all of us, this desire for greatness, this desire to grow, this desire to see God do good things in the world, this desire for us to do greatness in the world. I believe there's going to be some challenge, and there's going to be some refocus as we redefine what greatness is in the light of the cross. But the poem or the song that we just read from Isaiah talks about a Messiah or Savior that achieves true greatness. So three examples of greatness that we see modeled here. The first one, greatness from Isaiah's servant. The first one, his wisdom is unrivaled. His wisdom is unrivaled. Indeed, my servant, the Messiah, will act wisely and prosper. He'll be raised and lifted up and greatly exalted. Kings will stand speechless in his presence. For they will see what they had not been told. They will understand what they had not heard about. So here we have wisdom. Wisdom is talked a lot about in the Bible. And really I would, if I was going to put it together and give you the best summary that I could for the purposes of today, I would say that wisdom is the ability to, dis- to decide what the next step is amidst the complexities of the world. The ability to decide what the next step is amidst the complexities of the world. And the book of Proverbs says that wisdom is more valuable than gold. And in this culture and in this time and what was typical and what was expected is that kings would embody the most wisdom than anybody. More wisdom than anyone else would be embodied among the kings. And so when Isaiah says that kings will stand amazed, what he's saying is, is that this servant, this suffering servant, this Messiah who we would know as Jesus is going to have kings on the edge of their seats, amazed at the wisdom that comes from him. His wisdom is absolutely unrivaled. He is the best of the best. So the first thing that we get from Isaiah's servant, the greatness that was achieved, is he has wisdom that is unrivaled. The second thing is that he fulfills the promise to Abraham. He fulfills the promise to Abraham, Isaiah 58, uh, sorry, 53 verse 8, but no one cared that he died without descendants that his life was cut short in midstream. But it goes on, when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have many descendants. And that word descendants is not there by accident. This is deeply important to the Old Testament story because this pulls our attention all the way back to Abraham. Genesis 12 is a pivotal moment in the Old Testament story. God makes a series of promises to Abraham and a covenant including, I will make your descendants into a great nation. So this is a promise that meant a great deal to the Old Testament people that Isaiah is writing to, but specifically the people that he's writing to and the time that he's writing to them. They were desperate. This is something we've talked about quite a, quite a bit over the last few weeks is that this, this poem, this song is being written to people that are desperate to repair their relationship with God, to a people that may even be entertaining the idea that the promises that God made to our ancestors, the promises that God made to Abraham, they've passed us by. We're not able to live in the promise anymore. We may have gone too far. We may have gone too far from God's grace. We may have gone too far from the love of God. 
At which point Isaiah makes sure that we understand, no, this promise is being fulfilled and will be fulfilled in the Messiah, who we now know, of course, is Jesus. And the third thing, the third great thing that Isaiah's servant accomplished is he is victorious. His wisdom is unrivaled. He fulfills the promise to Abraham, and he is victorious. I will give him the honors of a victorious soldier because he exposed himself to death. The honors of a victorious soldier. And uh, I read a book uh, a little while ago now, and I was really looking at how stories are structured together and how, uh, you know, how stories have commonalities between them, even if it's a different genre, there's still uh, some similarities from one story to another and, and how stories have been you know, sort of put together and uh, the nature of storytelling among people. But the reason I bring this up is, is it talks about there's a number of things that are very, very common to stories and almost typical of stories. One of them is this idea that almost every story, I'm not confident enough to say every story, but almost every story will involve a challenge. Almost every story will involve some kind of obstacle will involve some kind of fight, something that needs to be overcome, something that needs to be beaten. And it's easy to see this, especially if you think about movies. You know, Rocky needed to fight Apollo Creed. Um, Woody and Buzz needed to get back to Andy. Uh, romantic comedies, they have a couple that just won't fall in love until the last scene. Um, and Darth Vader needed to reconnect with his kids. There's a struggle. There's the fight. There's something to overcome. There's something to beat. And the story of Jesus is no different. The story of Jesus is no different. I mean, it's the greatest victory that would ever happen. But this idea that there is a struggle, that there is a fight, something that needs to get overcome, that there is a victory that needs to happen. And in culture and art and history, literature, we celebrate victories. It stirs something within us. It's one of the reasons why here at our church, the atmosphere is up it's not down. It's an up atmosphere here because we gather together and we celebrate a victory, the greatest victory that has ever been. Can I get an amen up in here? Because we gather to celebrate the single greatest victory any person will ever, ever know is what Jesus did on the cross. So the greatness from Isaiah, the three things, wisdom, fulfilling the promises given to Abraham and accomplishing the single greatest victory that would ever be known. But it doesn't come in an expected way. Those things are elements of greatness. And if this was a story about anyone else, we would also agree like, yeah, that is greatness. Extreme wisdom. Fulfilling ancient promises. That's a great thing to do. Having an extreme victory. That's a great thing to do. No matter how you define it, no matter what story you're telling, if that's a part of the story, we would agree, yes, that is greatness. But how that greatness was achieved did not come about in a common or predictable way. So Isaiah 53, it details the suffering that Jesus would go through. And it's the opposite of what you and I would assume when we think about how greatness is achieved. He accomplished great things, but the mindset and the approach of Jesus was so different than what you and I would ever imagine. I want to skip forward to the New Testament. I want to spend a little bit of time considering a passage from the book of Philippians. And this is a book that uh, Paul wrote, again, 700 years or so after uh, Isaiah wrote the long verse that we just read a few moments ago. But I want to read this portion from Philippians 2. Some of you all know this well. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. This is Paul trying to help the church understand who Jesus is, what it's like to live for him, the kind of person Jesus was, so that it can shape and mold their faith and their life following him. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. 
not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of, as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And so there's three qualities, three methods, three hows, that Jesus achieved the greatness that he achieved on the cross that we read about from Isaiah. And I want to spend some time and I want to look at some snippets from Philippians and also back to Isaiah 53 that I think can teach us how we achieve the greatness that we see Jesus modeled. The first thing is Jesus' example of greatness was obedience. Obedience. I've been told for years that great, uh, to be a great leader, you have to be a great follower. I've heard that for years. I've shared that with teams at churches. I've shared that at you know, different leadership trainings and things. Um, and I will also tell my children this. To be a great leader, you have to be a great follower. And this past summer, my kids, I was out with the twins. So we have seven-year-old twins, Moses, who I've already mentioned, and then he has a twin sister, Esther. And so the three of us were out, and they're on their bikes, and I'm walking, trying to keep up. And they would take turns about who got to go first, who got, who got to be the leader. And so Moses would get out front, and he would have no problem. He would just speed off, and Esther would try and, you know, keep up as best she could. But then when it was Esther's turn to be the leader, Moses couldn't help himself. She's trying to be out front, and Moses just wanted to just do one of those and get around her. And eventually, Esther goes, Moses, if you want to be a good leader, you have to be a good follower. <laughs> and in that moment, I thought, my work here is done. <laughs> but to be a good leader, you have to be a good follower. This idea of obedience for Jesus, that meant being obedient to the Father. It meant being obedient to the point of the cross from Isaiah, but it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and cause him grief, the good plan that Jesus willingly participated in by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And there are other scriptures that talk about this too, such as Jesus saying, you know, your will be done. And greatness is found in lovingly obeying the Father. For Jesus being a follower, for Jesus being obedient, it was saying, I'll go to the cross. I'll pay the price. I'll go through the pain. I'll go through the agony. Greatness is found in lovingly obeying the Father. Second thing, Jesus' example of greatness is humility. And there's a lot you could talk about with humility. There's a very famous C.S. Lewis quote, which I'm sure a number of you have heard before, that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking about yourself less. And on the cross, we see this play out, that it's the love that Jesus had for you and for me and for every other person outweighed his desire for personal comfort. It was Jesus' opportunity to show his incredible, unrivaled, unmatched, indescribable love to humanity on the cross and the humility to say what matters for them is gonna be more important than what matters to me. My comfort and my preference is not going to be precedent right now. That is not going to take over. He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. Humility. And the third thing, he put others first. Jesus' example of greatness. The third thing, others first. 
The first was obedience, second, humility, and the third, others first. And every now and again when I'm talking about things like this and this subject comes up, people will ask and they'll want to sort of talk more about, you know, well, well hold on, I mean, you know, you're talking about putting others first. I mean, what about in a, you know, competition? Or what about, you know, if there's a promotion at work and only one person can have it? And, you know, I started off by saying I don't think the pursuit and the desire for greatness is wrong or evil. Uh, having strong ambitions is, is not evil. It's not something I would ever sort of say, no, 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 you need to stifle that. But I would say with this in mind and putting others first, if your way of getting ahead involves cheating, lying, manipulating, cutting corners, ratting people out, working the system, it's not honorable. Competition is, is, is not something that I would say is evil. I'm a sports fan. I want my team to win. I don't want them to win by cheating because that's not real victory. That's not real greatness. So real greatness is to win honorably. It's to share credit for success. But generally, this attitude is missing. Coworkers throw each other under the bus. Clients get told half the story so they keep on buying. People will willingly damage others so they can get ahead. There's a hunger for credit that will do, you know, will we'll do wrong to other people. We'll shortchange the people around us so that people, we get the, the credit all to ourselves. And like I say, ambition isn't wrong. Success, achievement, all these things, they're not terrible things, but if you're willing to win dishonorably, I would say that's a problem and is something that does need to be redefined. And we see this modeled by Jesus by putting other people first. Jesus' example was different in all these things. It was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous. For he will bear all their sins. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather in humility, value others above yourself. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And when you go to work tomorrow or you go to work Wednesday afternoon, don't expect people to agree with you on this. That the way to find greatness and see greatness in your life is by having obedience, having humility by putting others first. Having obedience, maybe that means getting on board with the big picture that the boss is putting out there. Maybe it's humility by looking for ways to help people around you. Maybe it's putting others first by doing what's right even though it comes at a cost to you. But Jesus also said this, the greatest among you must be a servant, but those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. I would say um, probably my favorite author, and when I say favorite author, I mean I, I've probably read more of his books than any other author is, remember the name of John Maxwell. And John Maxwell, uh, he was a pastor for many years, led some great churches, and he really felt that the Lord was calling him to step away from pastoral ministry and to start taking the lessons that he learned in leadership from uh, being a church leader, um, as well as his understanding of the scriptures, and to bring that to the business world and teach business owners and teach people in the private sector uh, all about leadership, um, doing it from the scriptures. And so that's what he's done. And by part of him doing that is he's written a number of books. And like I say, he's probably my favorite author. I've probably read more of his books than any other single author. Love his stuff. But one of, his, uh, one of his catchphrases, if you will, one of the things that he says most often is that leadership is influence. Nothing more, nothing less. Leadership is influence. Nothing more, nothing less. 
And I want to suggest to you today as we talk about this idea of greatness and the example that Jesus put before us, that every believer is called to positively influence, which means that every believer is called to be a leader. When Jesus said that you are salt and light, when Jesus said go and make disciples, he wasn't talking to a select few. This wasn't something he said to the special believers. This was to all the believers. You are salt and light. Go make a difference. In Ephesians 4, it says that the church leaders, the fivefold ministries, they were given to all the believers for the work of the ministry. In 1 Corinthians, it says that all believers have a spiritual gift to help build the church. Peter describes all believers as a royal priesthood. Every believer is called to positively influence the world around us. Every believer is called to make a difference wherever God has placed them. I've, there's a, a study done by sociologists, and they spent a long time figuring this out, a lot of research went into this. What they found is that the most introverted people, people that will actively work hard to get away from people, the most introverted people, over a course of a lifetime, they will influence up to 10,000 people over a lifetime. Now, you made it out of the house today, so you're not included in one of these extreme introverts. So how many more people will you influence over a course of a lifetime? How many more people will you influence by being salt and light, by exercising the spiritual gift that God has put in you, by finding your place as a royal priesthood, by going and making disciples as Jesus told believers? Every single believer is called to influence positively, to make a positive difference. Every believer should embrace this call to greatness, not defined by what the world says, but defined by what Jesus said and the example he laid out on the cross 2,000 years ago. And Jesus is our role model. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I have done to you. Those who say they live in God should live their lives as Jesus did. True greatness is dependent on Jesus. And we read about the greatness of Isaiah's servant who we now understand is, is Jesus. And the greatness of Isaiah's servant, the greatness wasn't just for the benefit of the servant. The greatness that Jesus achieved on the cross, it wasn't just for his own benefit. We talked about Jesus and on the cross, what he achieved in his greatness is that his wisdom is unrivaled. And my encouragement to you as a believer, as we are dependent on him for greatness, is that he shares his wisdom. James 1.5, if you need wisdom, ask our generous God and he will give it to you. The greatness, the unrivaled wisdom that comes from God, he is willing to share. We also talked about he fulfills the promise to Abraham. And you as a believer are included in the promise. For as many as are the promises of God in Christ, they are all answered yes. So through him we say our amen to the glory of God. We read that Jesus on the cross, he was victorious. And he includes you in the victory. For every child of God defeats this evil world. And we achieve this victory through our faith. And who can win this battle against the world? Only those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God. The wisdom the unrivaled wisdom that would stun and amaze kings he shares with you. The promise given to Abraham thousands of years ago, 
you get to share in the inheritance of that promise being fulfilled in him. The victory, the greatest victory of all against sin and death and the power of the evil of this world being conquered on the cross 2,000 years ago. You and I as followers of Jesus get to share in that victory. And true greatness is defined by Jesus. We talked about obedience, we talked about humility, we talked about putting others first. And to do that and to help sort of bring some understanding to that, we look through Philippians 2. And it powerfully outlines some of these examples that we see on the cross and we see in Isaiah 53. We also saw in that passage from Philippians 2. But the book of Philippians as a whole is not a defeatist book. It talks a lot about humility. It talks about Jesus taking on the form of a servant. And if we read that just on its own, I don't know about you, but I think I could read that and I could say, man, this is pretty defeatist. This is pretty like we're just going to give up. We're just going to lay down and take the beatings of the world. We're going to sit down and we're just going to take it. But that's missing the point. The book of Philippians also contains these well-known verses. I'm going to rattle through these. These are well-known Bible verses. God, who began the good work within you, will continue his work until it is finally finished. Don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. I press on to reach the end of the race and receive the heavenly prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. And the same God who takes care of me will supply all of your needs from his glorious riches which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. This is not a defeatist message. This is not you've got knocked down. Now you have to stay down and take another kick in. This is a message of I have the strength to be able to show humility. I have the strength that I can be obedient to the Father. I have the strength that I can put others first. It is not saying I'm going to be knocked down, kicked out, and God's fine with it, and that's what God has for me. Instead, it's declaring because of Jesus, I have wisdom. Because of Jesus, I'm a recipient of the promises of God. Because of Jesus, I share in his promises. So from my position of strength, I can show humility. From my position of strength... I can be obedient to the Father. Because of my strength, I can put others first and believe that that is going to set me on the path to greatness. And one of the reasons Paul wrote the book of Philippians is that uh, the church in Philippi were helping to fund Paul's ministry. And so reading between the lines a little bit, the scholars have come to somewhat of a consensus and agreed that uh, the, the Philippian church had sent a gift to Paul, a financial gift to Paul to keep him going in ministry. And so part of the reason Paul writes the letter is to thank them for that financial gift. So with that in mind, Philippians 4.17, not that I seek the gift itself, so I'm grateful for your financial support but I'm not just thinking about it in terms of myself and how it benefits me, but I do seek the profit which increases to your heavenly account, the blessing which is accumulating for you. So I'm real grateful that you sent me financial support, but what I really care about is that this blessing is being added to your account. I, I'm, I'm glad that you've supported me, I'm glad that you're keeping me going, but what I'm really happy about is that this is, this is going to be added to your account. Now, it's not clear what Paul's got in mind when he says this. 
But when Paul says that your financial support for me, there is an account which this is being added to you. There's credit that's coming to you because of your financial account in the heavenlies. And it's not clear what that means, but imagine that this blessing that is building up for the people that were funding his ministry, imagine this blessing is that one day, the people who have been benefited and who are blessed because of you, because of your faithfulness, because of your obedience, because of your humility, because you put others first, one day they're going to tell you it's because of you. You played a part. So take an eternal perspective with me. In eternity, wouldn't it be amazing if all the people that are in eternity with the Lord that have been saved... They let you know the small part you played. You helped fund a missionary that came and spoke to my village. I'm here in part because of you. Imagine if someone comes and says, you agreed to pray for my mom when she was a teenager to come to faith, which now means I grew up in a Christian home. You were a greeter on the church door on a Sunday morning And when I came to church, you smiled, and I knew that this was a place where I could feel welcome and belong. Part of the reason I made my decision to follow Jesus is because of that warm welcome that I received. You were in a life group with me. When I was having the worst day of my life, you came alongside me, and you just let me know that you cared, even though you couldn't fix the thing that was going on in my life. That helped me get through another day. I'm here, in part, because of you. I don't know about you, but for me... That's true greatness. Is an eternity being able to hear the stories of how God used my life. God used the positive influence that I believe is on every single believer. How he used my obedience, my humility, my desire to put others first. Hearing those stories, that I would say is true greatness. I've got a couple of questions for you and hopefully have a chance this week to think through and reflect a little. But the first thing is, do you need to change your definition of greatness? Do you need to change your definition of greatness? As we talked about obedience and humility and putting others first, as your idea about what greatness is and how to achieve greatness, does it need to change? And the second question is this, are your ambitions dependent on Jesus? Are you dependent on his wisdom? Are you dependent on seeing him fulfilling the promises of God in your life? Are you dependent on his strength to bring victory instead of your own? Are your ambitions dependent on Jesus? We started off reading a few verses from the book of Colossians. And I read kind of half of the passage of scripture. And I want to read the second half for you now. Colossians 1.19, for God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. This includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body As a result, he has brought you into his own presence, and you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. This is some good news. This is why we come together and we celebrate. 
That's why we do it with joy. But you may be here today, and I, I don't know your story. I don't know what circumstances have meant that you're in church here this morning, or you may be watching online. I, I don't know the circumstances. I don't know your story. But I wonder, as I read that passage from Colossians, if you would have listened to that, and you would have thought to yourself, that's not me. I don't click with that. I'm one of the people that Paul described as being far away from God. And if you are, I'm so glad you're here today. If you would listen to me talking about how incredible Jesus is and you just think, man, I've never felt that for myself. I believe you're here today. I believe the time is right. And I believe that today can be the day where everything turns around for you. About 17 years ago, I went to a church and the pastor was talking about the power of mercy. As I heard about the mercy of God, I made the decision, you know what, I'm done. I need to follow God. I was 19 years old and I made that brave decision to follow Jesus and I've never regretted it, not once. I'm not gonna stand up here and lie to you and say that life has been plain sailing ever since. There's been ups, there's been downs, but I've never once regretted my decision to follow Jesus. And I believe if you speak to other believers, they'll tell you a similar story. But if you're here today and you'd say, you know what, I don't feel close to God, but I want to. I want to start figuring out what it means to follow Jesus. I want to put one foot in front of the other and start pursuing a life of faith. I would love to pray for you today. So I want to invite everyone here to close your eyes and bow your heads. Just give privacy to those around you. And I give you my word that we're not going to do anything that would embarrass you or be weird or strange or uncomfortable. But in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to put your hand up if that's you today. And when we pray, I'd love to know that I'm including you in that prayer. So if this is you, I just want to invite you, just put your hand up just for a moment. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else here? Thank you. Amen. Amen. Anybody else? We're going to pray together in just a moment. And if you want to be included in that prayer, just raise your hand. I'd love to pray for you today. Anybody else? Amen. Those of you online, you can click the button that says, I raise my hand. Just to let somebody know that you made this decision today. Amen. Anybody else? Before we, before we close, before we pray. Amen. I'm glad we waited for you. Amen. Come on, Word of Life Church. Come on, in person, online. Can we please celebrate people making the single best decision anybody can ever make. We're going to pray a prayer together and the words are going to be on the screen. I'll say a line. I want to invite you to pray this back with me. And I want every single person here to pray this. And especially if you're one of those people that put your hand up, either here or online, I want you to pray this full of faith, believing that a prayer like this is the power to change everything. So come on, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, I believe you died for me. I want to follow you. I invite you to be Lord of my life. Help me follow you every day. I want to leave my old life of sin behind and heal my broken relationship with God. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Come on, one more time, everybody. Let's celebrate.
Amen. Well, hey, let's welcome back Aaron and Leslie as they come and share with you some next steps.